Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, we are going to look again at uh, the text that we began looking at last week. We'll be focusing on 122 through chapter 2, verse 1. The title is, once again, Born Again for an Imperishable and Abiding Love. Part do. That's fancy. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for your kindness to us in speaking, in revealing yourself in words, words that help us to understand your actions. Words that help us to understand who we are because of your actions and how we are to live on the basis of who we are. And so help us to see Christ here within uh, this text and help us to find our lives hidden within him and help us, Lord, in, in seeing your spirit forming Christ within us that we would unreservedly give ourselves over to you with all of our hearts and minds and souls and strength. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Recently, I had someone recommend a book to me, and so um, looking for something new to read, I was able to find it and get a hold of it. And as I was reading it, there was a section here that I thought was really helpful in in illustrating um, some of what Peter is talking about here Uh, in the way that I am trying to encourage us to understand what it means for us to be born again to a living hope where we embody and where where we embrace and embody that hope in a hostile world. 1 Peter, as we have talked about, is about living the Christian faith in the midst of hostility, in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation. And as I was reading in this book, there's this, uh, this scene where um, a minister 
who is the father of the main character of the story, but the, the minister um, has gone and he is playing a game of chess with a family friend. The minister had served in the military, had served uh, in World War II, and had come away from his time of service permanently changed. He had struggles because of what he saw, because of what he witnessed, because of what he experienced in the war. Now, what's interesting is the book actually never tells you exactly what it is, which is kind of frustrating and kind of fun all at the same time. But we know he's nervous a lot. We know he doesn't like fireworks, obviously. But we know that there's something there that has changed him permanently, at least the way that he is responding to it. The family friend, uh, who is a famous musician, also served in the war. And he was permanently damaged physically. His face was mangled, um, and he lost his eyesight. And you have these two guys that both experienced the same thing, the same horrors of war. And they're talking with one another, and what the minister says is, I've been trying to reach out and minister to this man in my church because he fought in the war. He's not responding well to what he witnessed and experienced, and what he is doing is he's hitting his wife, and he's hitting his child. The wife is showing up to church Sunday morning with black eyes. The son is showing up uh, to church with bruises, and so the minister is, is, is talking to this other guy that they both shared these wartime experiences and he's trying to find out, you know, what, what do you think I need to do to be able to minister to this other guy who has experienced those same tragedies that you and I have experienced. We have experienced them and we're able to sit down and enjoy a game of chess. This other guy has experienced them and he is lost in alcoholism and he is beating his family. And so he asks, and the family friend says, sometimes Nathan, I think it wasn't so much the war as what we took into the war. Whatever cracks were already there, the war forced apart, and what we might otherwise have kept inside came spilling out. You and your life philosophy, for example, you may have gone to war thinking you were going to be a hotshot lawyer afterward, but I believe that deep inside of you there was always the seed of a minister. Last week I asked you, I pointed out that it's the same sun that can either harden clay or melt wax. Beloved, one of the things that we absolutely have to come to grips with as God's people living within a hostile world, living on this side of the perfection of what God is going to bring when Jesus Christ returns is that the circumstances in which we live, especially 
negative circumstances, trial, tribulation, hostility, these things do not determine how you live and how you respond. What they will do is reveal what is already there within you. To put it another way, difficult circumstances cannot cause you to sin. But what they will do is provide an opportunity for you to see where you are in your maturity in Jesus Christ. Difficult circumstances are part of being the people of God in a world that hates our Savior. And so as we are continuing to try to embrace this hope that we have in Jesus Christ in order to embody that hope to this hostile world, we we have to approach things from the perspective of of the implications of the gospel for us. Now, one of the things that we have talked about in, this, in 1 Peter chapter 1 so far is one of the fundamental patterns of the Christian life. And we talked about it from the perspective of identity. That the way the Christian life unfolds is that the, uh, your identity will determine how you live. How you see yourself, how you understand yourself will be reflected in the way you express yourself. If you think horribly about yourself, that will come out in the way that you live. If you think positively about yourself, that too will come out in the way that you live. The pattern that we're talking about here within theological speak is often referred to as the indicative and the imperative. If you never remember those words, that is okay. But basically, it's the pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament, and it's the pattern that we see in in greater clarity in the New Testament. And that pattern is this. God redeems his people, and he makes them his own, and then says, because of what I have done, and because of who you are, now reflect that in the way that you live. That's the pattern. We see it in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't start with, have no other God before me. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of bondage and slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. This is a fundamental pattern of the way that we are to interact with God, with ourselves, with the world, And that is on the basis of this new identity that we have as the redeemed people of God and learning to grow more and more into this intuitive self-understanding of that new identity so that that new identity starts to reflect itself more and more and more in the way that we live. And that identity... That, that, that Peter has been unfolding for us here is that we are part of this new people of God that exists because Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. That when Jesus rose from the dead, you had the beginning of a new humanity. 
a risen humanity, a humanity that was no longer defined by sin and death, but a humanity that was now defined by glory and perfection. And what it means for the church to be united to Jesus Christ is that we have been born again. We have participated in Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so we have been raised from death to life. We have been born again to a living hope. That living hope, who we are as a risen people, as a people who are no longer defined by the, 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 feudal, the feudal ways of our forefathers, a people who are no longer defined by the temporary and finite things of this world which rust and decay and are passing away. Instead, we have been born again to a living hope that God is keeping for us in the heavenly places where he's keeping us so that we will receive them in their fullness when Jesus Christ returns. There is an eternality that now defines that core essence of who we are in Jesus Christ. What Peter does here in this section that we're looking at right now is he he introduces um, a second fundamental pattern for understanding how to live the Christian life. How do we take that identity, that new identity that we have, and from that, learn to give expression to that identity more and more and more? And what he does is he introduces the pattern by calling us to be holy as God is holy. And what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means to be completely and utterly and totally devoted to God. What that requires then is that you stop devoting yourself to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. Holiness has two components. And one of those components is what we are living for, but it also includes what we no longer live for. When we talk about things in terms of what's often referred to as discourse analysis is there is a negative and there is a positive. There is a subtraction and there is an addition. And that both sides of that coin are to be part of who we are as the people of God. That we are, because we have been redeemed from the feudal ways of our forefathers, and because we have been born again to the eternal, the eternal things uh, uh, of that hope that we have in Jesus Christ, we are to be holy. God has made us his people. He has freed us from sin. And so we are to live in a way that reflects that we are his people and that reflects that we are no longer dead in sin. Do you see the way this is working? Now, for us to reflect this, it means there are certain things that we have to no longer have anything to do with in order for us to give ourselves to the right things. Now, holiness quite often, and this is one of the reasons I didn't introduce this idea when we were talking about holiness several sermons ago, 
is because a lot, quite often, evangelicals, conservative people who really think highly of the scripture tend to think of holiness mostly in terms of what I don't do. If I don't do this, and if I don't do that, and if I don't do this, and if I don't do that, then I am being holy. I'm growing in holiness. Well, that's not really the case. You certainly have things that you're supposed to not do. But if there is nothing positive on the other side of that, we are not growing in holiness. If you look at the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, and you look at the section that has to do with the law, what you will notice there is there is this very pattern from Scripture is provided for us there within the catechism. And the pattern is this. The, the question will be, okay, what, what is the first command? And then the question will be, what does this command require? What does this command forbid? You see that? That is that pattern of negative and positive. Positive and negative. It is a pattern by which we don't simply express holiness by just simply trying not to do things, but that we are to not do certain things in order to facilitate doing other things. We are to be pursuing something actively as a way of not pursuing things that we once pursued, negative and positive. Paul likes to use this imagery a lot. He'll, he'll use phrases like put off and put on. Romans 13, 12, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4, and 23, put off your old self to put on the new self. Colossians 3, 5 through 14 is framed around this idea of put to death in order to put on. Titus 2, 11, the grace of God has appeared, and that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and that grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Negative, positive, negative, positive. When you come to new life in Jesus Christ, when you are born again, as Peter says here, twice within this first chapter, when you are born again, what that means is that you are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. The old man is gone. The new man has come. This, this is this identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And this identity then, as it calls us to be holy, this holiness is reflected in putting things, some things to death and living for other things. Now, in reform circles, some, many of us are familiar with the name John Owen. And John Owen did a lot of writing on this topic. In fact, one of his most uh, famous writings is Mortification of Sin in Believers, where he says you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he utilized these terms, mortification and vivification. Mortification meaning put to death. When you have gangrene, right, on your skin, it has to be 
mortified. It has to be cut out. What happens if you let the gangrene stay? It starts infecting healthy flesh, right? So you have to cut the, the bad flesh away. That's mortification. Vivification is this idea of, of life being added, energy being added. Something is being animated. It is being quickened. And so these, 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 uh, this idea of the negative and the positive, or mortification and vivification, put off, put on. Negative, positive, negative, positive. This is an essential pattern for us to understand so that we can embrace that new identity that we have in Jesus Christ so that we can embody that new identity to God, to ourselves, to one another within the church, but also to those outside the church. That this defines the way that we relate to culture. It defines the way that we relate to government. It defines the way that we relate to our spouses. And right now, what I'm doing is I'm just working through the next several paragraphs in 1 Peter. This pattern, uh, uh, these two patterns of identity-driven um, of devotion to God and, and expressing or, uh, that identity in terms of what we put off and what we put on, these these determine everything in the way that we relate to everything. So what does that have to do here with love? Well, we noted last week that what Peter says is even though we don't go through um, the same type of visible rite or ceremony that you see in the Old Testament with regards to ritual cleanliness or ritual purity. Nonetheless, when you are giving yourself to God in obedience, that is your consecration. And so the people of God who have been born out of sin and who now have uh, this capacity for righteousness, as we learn to live and grow in that righteousness, we are constantly renewing our consecration of cleanliness and purity towards God. And what Peter says is the reason we're doing all this is for love. Love of God, and then specifically here within our passage, love for one another in the church. Brotherly love, he says. And what is this love to be here in the church? We noted last week it's to be pure, it's to be sincere, it is a participation and a reflection of God's love. Now think about that for a second. This doesn't simply mean, you know, try to relate to one another the way God has related to us. Now it does mean that. But go a little deeper. How has the Father always related to the Son? How has the Son always related to the Holy Spirit? How has the Spirit related to the Father? You see my, my point? Our triune God has existed as love. 
And that is why we are told God is love. God is a, a trinity. I don't know exactly what all that means. But he's one and he's three. And one of the primary characteristics of that trinity is love. God is love. And so this love that we're called to, this pure love, that, this sincere love that we're called to is a reflection of that shared love that we enjoy in Jesus Christ because we've been drawn into the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been drawn into that. We've been born again to that. And so what he says is we are to love, and, and the characteristic of our love is God's love. And it's the way God loves within himself, and it is certainly the way God has loved his people. This is the love that we are to have towards one another in the church. Positive. What's the negative? Well, look at 2.1. The negative is that we are to put away, right? We are to lay aside. We are to put off. We are to put to death. We are to mortify. We are to clean out, notice here, malice, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. If we're going to be a people that are marked by God's love, the love that he enjoys within himself and the love with which he has loved us as his people, we cannot be a church characterized by deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, wickedness. This word for malice here is just simply the Greek word for evil. Now, the reason the translators have translated it as malice is because what's specifically in view is evil within relationship. But the idea here is we are to put away all evil. We are to put away all wickedness. This is the word that explains the concept of depravity. Westminster Confession 9.4, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace... He frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. Now let me summarize that. When you come to new life in Jesus Christ, you still have a depravity that is there within you. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you are no longer totally depraved. The T in tulip does not apply to the one who is in Jesus Christ. You do still have depravity, and you will still sin, but... You are not a slave to it. You don't have to only sin. You now have an ability not to sin. Now, this is huge. The people of God who are no longer defined and characterized by death 
are brought to new life, and therefore we are animated by the Spirit in order to will or to choose and to do righteousness. We won't do it perfectly, but we can and are to do it. The way the church relates within itself, it is not to be marked or characterized by a dominant or ongoing evil, wickedness, depravity, hateful feelings, mean-spiritedness, spiteful, self-serving. This is no longer to be the character. That's out of character with the love that exists within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is not to be any more deceit. There is no treachery. That means there is to be no betrayal of trust. There is not to be violation of faith. It means not taking advantage of someone or not taking advantage of the church through craftiness, through cunning, or underhanded methods. There is not to be any hypocrisy, meaning insincerity, pretense, play acting, wearing the mask, playing a stage role. We are not to create an impression that hides true intentions and motives. Oof. I think in Southern culture, we're, we're pretty good at understanding what this is asking us not to do. But bless your heart if you do. There's to be no envy, jealousy, spite, a feeling of discontent with one's own condition, which leads you to want something that you don't have or to want what your neighbor has. Right? This is the 10th commandment. Don't covet. Don't covet another's advantages, successes, possessions. But to sow and foster a contentment. Oof. Well, I don't think the church is doing all that I want it to do. So contentment. I don't think the church is being all that it can be. Look at the church down the road. They have more cars in the parking lot. Don't want another's blessings. Be content with what God has provided. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. And then number five, there is to be, if there is love, no slander. No defamation of someone's character, of someone's actions, of someone's intentions. No slander, no talking behind someone's back that you won't say to their face. 
Now, I want that to sink in. A church that is characterized by love will not be characterized by factions that are the result of people not being satisfied with where things are and therefore trying to get their own way through, the what, through what they say and the way that they maneuver. Some will do this in the church by trying to become an officer. If I can just get on the session, then I can really help straighten some things out. If I can get on the diaconate, I can really get things straightened out. If I can get on the women's leadership council, I can really get some things straightened out. Beloved, a church that is marked by love because of being born again in Jesus Christ is a church that relates to one another the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate in the heavenly places right now. Do you see Jesus up there right now thinking, you know what? I think Dad is being a little slow on the timeline. I'd rather come back a little sooner. And so maybe if I did this or this, if I flatter him, right? They're all kind of little techniques. Do you see Jesus doing that with his father? Do you see the father doing that with the son? Do you see the father and the son conspiring together? You know what? We really don't think the spirit is doing what we said the spirit's supposed to be doing. So what do we do to nudge they're not talking behind one another's backs i know it's an impossibility run with me or ride with me or fly with me that's an inside joke we don't see this among the trinity and what it means for us to have been born again peter says in second peter it means the life of god now dwells in the soul of man. That animation, that vivification, is the life of God surging through his people. Where does grace covenant fall? Where do we fall with some of these characteristics? These things that are not to be present. These things that are not to be practiced. Attitudes, actions, things that shouldn't be present because they deny and they contradict love. Where are we? How are we doing? We cannot read a text like this and start thinking about, oh, well, so-and-so really needed to hear that today. So-and-so church, man, they really needed to hear this. We need to hear this because God is speaking it to us right now. And I know that it is uncomfortable. I don't like it. You're, you're sitting here having thought about it for the last 10 minutes. I have thought about this for weeks and have had to fight and struggle of not condemning myself but also not dismissing sin. And that's the temptation that every one of us has to either dismiss it 
or redefine it or to allow it to sit on us in such a way that it's like that weight and that burden that David said in Psalm 32 needs to be lifted. And why did it need to be lifted? Because with David in Psalm 32, it was self-imposed. God was not the one that was creating that situation. It was David. And what created it was not David's sin. It was David not running to God to receive forgiveness. It was self-imposed because he decided that he would sit over to the side and try to deal with it within himself instead of dealing with it in light of who God is and what God had done. And we can, we can hear a passage of Scripture like this, and we can either try not to see ourselves within it, or we will see ourselves in it, but yet not manage it well and allow it to crush us. And what God is telling you, beloved, this morning is to take it seriously doesn't mean that you walk around crushed by it. It means that you, you embrace it, that you accept it, that you acknowledge it, and that you flee to Jesus Christ with it. That you go to God who has made you his people, who has caused you to be born again so that death is not what is surging through your veins, but life. And you say, God, I am now seeing something. You're revealing something to me about my life or you're revealing something to us about our church. And it is something that Jesus has died for. So thank you for showing me and thank you for blessing me in Jesus Christ so that I don't have to be defined and characterized by these things anymore. But I can embrace that imperishable nature of Jesus Christ and give myself to valuing and reflecting his eternal worth in the way that I respond to my brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Where is grace covenant? It's, it's nice to be new, right? Because I don't know. I don't know it all. But I've heard enough. The same sun that can harden clay is the same sun that can melt wax if we do not define ourselves by our new birth in Jesus Christ then the hostility that is not only in the world but is still in our own hearts will rip us to shreds but if we sow to ourselves that new nature that we have as those born again, then the trials and the temptations and the sins become opportunities for us to confess and to receive forgiveness and to walk in the joy of Jesus Christ and as, as his life animates us, we put it to death over and over and over and over. Are you talking? 
Have you talked about my sermons without talking to me first? I don't say that to say, stop talking. I say that to say, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Are you talking about the session? Are you talking about the diaconate? Are you talking about the Women's Leadership Council? Are you talking with people, talking with people, talking with people, complaining, arguing, trying to maneuver and plan? Then repent. But don't repent because you're a sinner. Repent because in Jesus Christ, you're already reckoned as righteous. And learn to grow and mature in such a way that your life will reflect more and more of the righteousness that God has already granted to you in his son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, repentance comes so unnaturally to us and so often we approach it through pride. A pride that will either cause us to think more highly of ourselves than we should, which leads us to diminish sin and leads us not to take it seriously. It leads us to avoid it. It leads us to try to point it out on others while ignoring what's in our, our own hearts and minds and souls. But Lord, we also will exercise pride, not in thinking too highly of ourselves, but thinking too lowly of ourselves. We will convince ourselves that I've sinned too, to too great of a degree, that God can't love me still, that God's grace has found its end point, that, that God can't and doesn't even want to hear me confess that again. I've confessed that sin a thousand times a day for, th for, for years. He doesn't want to hear me confess it again. Oh, Lord, we convince ourselves in our own pride either to puff ourselves up or to deflate ourselves unnecessarily. And so, Lord, just help us to get the focus off of ourselves and to get it on Jesus Christ. That for every one look that we take to ourselves, we will take a hundred to the face of Jesus. Lord, convince us that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate. So that as we strive not to sin, but we sin anyway, that we will not, like David, keep ourselves away from your throne of grace and therefore create unnecessary problems for ourselves, but that we would flee to you that we would receive once again that fresh declaration of forgiven and righteous. And then we would go through in the power of the Holy Spirit, sowing to the imperishable things of life. Lord, if there are people here today that are guilty of the things that we have talked about. Don't let them leave without beginning the process of dealing with you and without beginning the process of dealing with one another. 
Lord, your grace is too immense and vast for us to be defined by the awful things that we have witnessed, that we have experienced, or that we have done. Make us a people of love. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.